I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and I'm joined by Peter Hart at my ass once more. And today, Pete, we continue with the story of uh, the South Knots Hussars post-war. And this one is called uh, 307 Op Battery. OP Battery. Op Battery. OP Battery. (laughs) Op Battery. Observation Post. Exactly. Um, yeah, uh, so we, we've done, we, this is the third, isn't it, of these? It seems that we've just been having such a good time. Yes. Now, right. uh, where, where we got to was that uh, 1969, Major Alan Bexon had taken over command of this newly created 307 battery, Royal Artillery. It, that had risen from the ashes of 307 Regiment of Royal Artillery, which is, uh, uh, you know, uh, that was no more. That had been three batteries of 25 pounders. Uh, not necessary anymore, I'm afraid. Cold War or not. And we heard in the last episode they'd carved out their, a new role for themselves, hadn't they, yeah. by uh, identifying a, a lack of OP support in Germany. Now, the regiment had gone, but the new battery had a concrete role that promised to secure the future of the South Nazis for many years to come. That's interesting because they were meant to be linked uh, as the 4th Battery of 101 Regiment, uh, which is a, a TA regiment. Uh, do you think that was real? No, it proved to be an entirely theoretical relationship and neither side acted in any way as if they were aware of the existence of the other. Perfect, perfect. Uh, now, um, so in effect, they're independent, aren't they? Um, now, what the new battery commander, he was he's a confident chap, wasn't he? Yeah, he's confident not only in himself, but his men. Uh, But he was all too aware that many pitfalls lay ahead in properly establishing this strange hybrid unit. And this is Major Alan Bexon of the headquarters. I was chosen because of my ability for leadership, not gunnery. Leadership and recruitment. I was the right person at the right time for the right job. Overall, what we needed was to recruit 24 observation post parties. It's very difficult because 24 officers is a regiment's worth. Very unusual to have a major commanding an officer-raising unit of that number. It really should have been a half-colonel's command to get the admin to help run the unit. It was a very difficult unit to run, but I was all for it. Very keen, confident I could do it. 
You think he uh, wanted his half colonelcy? He did. (laughs) Now, he had to establish an organisation for the new unit, and unsurprisingly, he fell back on the format of three troops consisting of the hallowed numbers of 425, 426 and 520 troops. Yeah, uh, and uh, it's it, it's interesting that when, when it happens, four two five trip would ultimately become a gun trip. We'll come back to that. Four two six and five two zero. They're the they're the OP ones, aren't they? The op teams. Yeah. yeah. OP bad Gary. <laughs> uh, now, I imagine all those gunners listening to you going, "You." Now it was inevitable that the OPs were the focus of most of uh, Bexton's attention, as all. Though they already had competent OP officers, they would need a lot more to meet their requirements to the regular ar- army. And this is, once more, Major Alan Bexon. Each OP party had, a le- had, to, had to learn to live on its own in the field. They had to know a lot of basic gunnery. They had to be very, very good at field craft and communications. You existed on your own and were very much self-sufficient. A big problem was that we didn't have our own guns. Initially, we had to borrow them. We decided we had to get a gun troop. That's the 425 troop, that would be, which was a splendid training for a young officer to do his basic gunnery before he became an OP officer. So so he wasn't just a specialist. Uh, I was speaking to Polly the other day. She said that she'd like you to learn to live on your own in a field. She suggested to me to, to me on many occasions. Now, despite their OP status, it was obvious that they'd need something to practice with or they would be in an untenable situation, drifting along and depending for their training on the whims of other more conventional uh, gunner units. Yeah, and uh, th- this is what Captain Lee Parks, uh, again, headquarters, said. We'd got three 25-pounders which were purely training aids because, obviously, if you're going to train an OP party, you've got to have something to throw some rounds onto the ground. We weren't actually given a gun-end establishment. The idea was half the OP parties would be at the gun-end manning the guns and the other half would be up at the front doing their work. But, of course, that never worked. We had a permanent gun-end and a permanent gun position officer. It's interesting because at heart, there's no doubt that many of the South Nazis are still gunners. That, 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 that's what they, that's what it's all about for them, isn't it? All that entails to them. And they, 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 they really wanted all their recruits and all their officer cadets to be thoroughly grounded in the solid basics of gunnery. Uh, because otherwise they wouldn't understand what they were doing when they were at the OP posts. Uh, uh, they, they needed to know what was going on back at their guns. Now, we've got an example of a bright new officer cadet. Uh, he joined in 1971. Who's that? Uh, that's Officer Cadet Tim Richmond, and he began to learn his trade, attached first as a number six with a gun detachment of the gun troop. And this is what Officer Cadet Tim Richmond of 425 Troop says. A number six, I think it's an ammunition, passing ammunition to the gun. Yeah. He says this, The first time the guns fired was a tr- fantastic moment, partly of apprehension, but also of great excitement. Then the cordite hits you, and that has its effect on you later on. <laughs> Blimey. <laughs> if you inhale the cord- Right, that 24 hour, hours later, you have no trouble with constipation. <laughs> Very satisfying results. A combination of baked beans and cordite. Mm. Now, crucial to the success of the new gun troops was Battery Sergeant Major Gil Aldridge, who had a dual role in charge of the guns whilst acting as uh, command post officer. 
Now, that's a strange role as he was constantly forced to remind his men that the guns were now just a training yeah, aid. It's, yes, but it is strange because the guns, remember the guns, you, you might not know this, but they're the colours of the Royal Artillery, that like a, a regimental banner sort of thing. Uh, and it seems strange that they were downgraded to a training aid as opposed to the focus of everything. And what does Gil Aldridge say? My biggest problem was explaining to my little gunners that the guns were now only a black bald nasal. It was the OPs that were the be-all and end-all. It was very difficult to explain to people who'd been on the guns all their service. Now, what, yeah, that's, a, that's the raison d'etre of the unit, to produce the OP parties. Uh, and what was an OP party, Gary? Run through it for me. Well, uh, it had a, a trained officer, uh, an ACK signaller and uh, drivers. So there was a, a lot to learn. The art of ranging and grasping the correct voice procedure, we could do with learning the correct voice procedure, yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> and format of fire orders could at least in part be practised on the drill hall or even in the drill hall. Yeah. And this is Captain Chris Hooten of 426 Troop. I'm oh, going for Houghton. I'm going for Hooten. <laughs> so it's H-O-U... The puff range was a cloth model in one of the huts with villages, roads and potential targets on it. Underneath that, there was a grid system that corresponded to the map that you had. Whenever you gave out a fire mission, grid and direction, this could be worked out underneath quite quickly by moving a little trolley with some bottles of noxious liquid in them that you shook and stuck a pipe up to wherever the grid and direction correlated and a white puff of smoke would appear to those watching from above. Invariably, the noxious liquid didn't work and it would make an awful acidic smell beneath the canvas model. So it was a very handy place for people to go and smoke, to blow smoke through. Now, there's lots of other skills to be to be learned, weren't there? Uh, they had to record the details of the lands. When they were in OP parts, they've got to get used to recording what they could see in front of them. That, that if you like... Uh, uh, you know, and identify possible targets on a, on a sort of panorama. And, and Second Lieutenant Tim Richmond, 425 Troop, says this. As you get into your OP hole, you would draw a panorama of the main features you were looking at. It depended on whether you were a sort of budding Renoir or just a more graphic type. They varied a lot. The typical ground at Lark Hill, a fairly undulating plain, you would tend to draw the main contours in, trying to bring out where there was dead ground. And then if there was a particular wood, which was round, you would mark it and put a note against it. Round wood. Brilliant. Yeah, or if there was an old hulk, you might put lone tank. You'd have a scale on it. And if you had recorded the round wood as a target, you would put Zulu Tango 1234 so that you got the target number there. And in your OP notebook, you'd have the particulars of that target, the grid, Attitude, altitude, sorry, and direction. Things like that, just so that somebody coming into your hole, that's his OP hole, could immediately pick that up and get an assessment of what's going on in front of them. Well read, Pete. Thank you. Now, the OP officer and his assistant were still using the methods of ranging shells onto their target that would not have been out of place 50 years earlier. And this is Second Lieutenant Mike Parker, a four, uh, sorry, a five twenty troop. The knack was to get it on for line first of all, and to adjust for line left or right. Have a look at the first round, either in front or beyond. Get one in front and one behind, and then by splitting the bracket, you should get close to the target. 
Now, so th- th- that's the sort of tech. Well, that's what an OP post is doing. But recruitment, that, that, let's get on to that. It's a real problem for, well, it's always a problem for, for a TA unit. Uh, and it wasn't particularly easy in the sort of environment of the early 80s, was it? No, and Alan Beckson resorted to every means, means at his disposal to attract the right kind of young men into the barracks. Young men like me. Actually, it's, I've realised it's the early 70s. I do apologise. Mm. Mistakes by Pete. Yeah. Now, this is uh, what Major Alan Beckson says. We set out to make the Bullwell mess a very good club in all ways, both socially and work-wise. We had a lot of dinners and dinner nights, social events. We would tempt people to join us from the point of view of the social side. The Battery became a very well-known young men's club. And that's the old joke about the TA, is that that it was a drinking club. Um, But on the other hand, that's how you attract people in. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, they're deliberately looking for the kind of officer who could carry out his duties year after year without scaring the horses in the regular army. You mean socially acceptable? Absolutely. Or, crucially, having uh, any burning personal ambitions, because that's difficult in the TA. Yeah, so that... Yeah, and, and Captain Tony Haynes, who was in 520 Troop, he explains a bit. He says this. The struggle always was trying to find 24 officers who would happily soldier on for year after year as a captain, carrying out the OP rule, role, not rule, and not worrying about promotion, as there was only one vacancy as officer commanding, and there was nowhere else for them to go. It was quite a knife edge, and I think only the TA could have got away with that. So there's just one major. You're a captain, you've become a captain, you've gone through second lieutenant, uh, lieutenant, captain, and then there's 24 of you. Yeah, and I myself never worried about promotion. No, Gary, there was a reason for that being... (laughs) I never got any. You, no, Gary, that's not true. I got several. Several promotions, followed by... A number of demotions. Now, as been the case with his predecessors, he was not averse to looking at his senior NCOs with a view to exploiting what could be regarded as wasted talent. That's what you thought about me. Uh, one <laughs> obvious choice was Battery Sergeant Major Gil Aldridge, and this is Battery Sergeant Major Gil Aldridge of headquarters. Alan Bixon called me in and said, we're thinking of commissioning you. What qualifications have you got? I said, nothing. He said, Nothing. Well, I've got a city and guilds in bread making and confectionery. He said, well, that's a start. OK, leave it with us. Yeah, so uh, the, that it's amazing. At the grand old age of 39, Gil Aldridge, uh, is, uh, he, he goes before the commissioning board in uh, early 1970 and officially became the gun position officer of his beloved gun troop. Yeah, there you go. Um, now... He tries to change his persona from the Graf Regiment, a Sergeant Major figure, to uh, uh, a sort of more sophisticated, soft-spoken manner. Uh, uh, but uh, it doesn't impress everybody, does it? No, and this is Second Lieutenant uh, Second Lieutenant Gil Aldridge of uh, Gun Troop 307 Battery. Major Alan Betson had me in and he said, since you've got commissioned, you're not shouting enough, you know. You used to be all right, and I want you to get a grip of the younger officers. Be the father figure. Now, um, so, well, so that that's all going on. Uh, now, the OP exercises, well, this is the function of the regiment. So how does it work? 
Well, they would be attached to regular units in Germany. That's regular artillery units, uh, yeah. And that began almost immediately in 1970. Alan Bexon, or Major Alan Bexon, was concerned to ensure that his OP parties were up to the expected standards. And he was also keenly aware that not everybody actually wanted them to succeed. And this is what Major Alan Bexon says. I had to send an OP party to a regular gunner regiment, and there was no way a South Nazar was going to go to another regiment without being properly trained and being the right kind of people. I would rather not send a party than send a party that was not up to it. A lot of the regular regiments were anti this role. They saw it as their role, and but it was really their failure to provide the third OP party that meant that we were there. So all the OPs had to be as good as I could get them. So he's basically saying that it's that classic thing of, oh, this is our job, but they couldn't do it. And so the TA were, as so often, filling a gap. They were, and the first to go was Captain Tony Haynes, by then an experienced OP officer who was sent to join E Battery, the 1st Regiment Royal Horse Artillery. Oh, I'm sure they were lovely. (laughs) And then sent on in his role as a forward observation post officer to join an infantry unit to whom he was responsible for directing their artillery support in the exercises. So that becomes the pattern. This is just the first. And over the years, a uh, uh, load of uh, OP parties are sent out to be the third OP party for all these regular artillery units. Um, what's one of the, the biggest problems uh, that they had? Well, uh, <laughs> one is that the equipment the OP parties were issued wasn't... <laughs> was not at first standardised or in any way up to any sort of scratch. Uh, what does Battery Captain Lee Park say about it? We were stuck away with our OP party with the tanks. Never having had anything to do with tanks before in my life, we were all a bit nonplussed. They gave us a very clapped-out Land Rover and a Centurion tank. They all had the newer tanks, which were faster. So when they went charging off, there was my poor old tank chugging away at the back, The squadron commander would be saying, keep up, keep up, where are you, keep up. The bloody centurion was going flat out. Yeah, there's another complication, and this is typical. Uh, uh, In their training in in, in Britain, they would still measure it. Now, you might have to explain this to me, Gary, and I'm looking forward to your explanation. They were still measuring in degrees, whereas the regular army had switched to uh, mills, um, where 6,400 mills were equal to 360 degrees. Um, Um, Would that cause a problem? Could you explain the problem that might cause, Gary? Well, over time, some standardisation was achieved and it became the normal course of events for the OP party to be equipped with the tracked 432 armoured personal carrier and an accompanying ferry armoured car. I'm completely ignoring your question. Yes, I noticed that. I was just thinking, I'm about to get my explanation. No, neither of us understand it at all, do we? No, but I I presume it's the difference. It was like um, uh, there's a difference in... Great war degrees and modern degrees. Yes, there is. It's the same sort of thing, isn't it? Uh, 432 APC, have you heard of that? Uh, I've heard of that, yes, because obviously I. It's now the 70s, Pete, and me being quite an old person. I was uh, thinking, because they were still in use. They were still them. in use, uh, certainly in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, yeah. And 90s. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't in the army in the 90s, Pete, no, they, as they, you well know. <laughs> oh, why had you left? <laughs> now, the scenario of most of the exercises was that a red force was uh, attacking a, a, a blue force who were heroically defending for all their worth. It was uh, aimed to represent the threat 
of the Soviet Union, the Eastern Bloc, launching a full-scale offensive across the German plains to launch World War Three. Well, as we know, there's no chance of the Russians ever attacking anybody. We know that from recent history, don't we? We do. Now... These exercises were on a huge scale and expensive in, in, in every respect. I, I was involved in one in 1980, Crusader. That's the biggest, wasn't it? It was the biggest since the Second World War, yeah. Now, as you can't pronounce his name, this is Captain Chris Houghton <laughs> of uh, 46 Troop. What does Chris say? You can probably oh, Chris. Imagine, you can probably imagine Chris. Remember, I knew him. Now, all exercises had two ends to them. One was when a certain number of people were actually killed in accidents... And the other was how much damage had been caused to the German countryside. It caused a vast amount of damage. These were divisional exercises and there were armoured divisions being exercised as if it was wartime in part of their preordained battle plan. The initial contact, the withdrawal across the Weser, the killing zone battle and then the advance crossing the Weser. Memories of chieftains in swimming pools, accidents in the dark and where civilian cars ran into tanks. Yeah. I have similar memories, actually. <laughs> yeah, you ran into a tank, didn't you, in your car? No, it wasn't a tank. No, it was a lorry. Lorry, yeah. Very. Well, were you drunk? No. <laughs> I was just incompetence. Just incompetence, yes. <laughs> or was that incontinence? Now, when the war was over, there were uh, traditions of excess. Uh, during by war, the... you mean the exercise. <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes. Uh, war in inverted commas was war. over. There were traditions of excess during the allotted recreation time excess? in Germany. Uh, to be carefully carved out. And this is Captain Tony Haynes of 520 Troop. The rest of my vehicle crew went into Hamburg. They arrived back in the early hours of Sunday morning and it was ruled that the troops should all be on parade on Sunday morning, come what may. Anybody that wasn't on parade would be on fatigues and disciplined accordingly. Lance Bombardier K, who was my driver, and a real broad Nottingham art of gold lad, he had really got to town. He came back and he'd been so drunk that when he woke up in the morning, he couldn't get up out of his sleeping bag. I went to see him to try and cajole him to get him at least out on parade. I said, look, I'll even support you, walk with you to put you on parade so you aren't disciplined. And he kept saying, ah, but I can't see, sir. I can't see. He'd literally become blind drunk. So in the end, he was left there. Now, uh, you've had many experiences of that nature, I understand, in your uh, German career. Yeah, I mean, there was a drink called, I think it was called Ratsipus, which uh, they set fire to before you drank it. And if the Russians were ever going to invade, about eight o'clock on a Friday night would have been, <laughs> it would have been a walk in the park, frankly. Now, Alan Bexon had worked hard to try and establish this completely new South Nazis ours. And at the end of his tour as battery commander in December 1972, it's fair to say that he'd been successful. And this is Major Alan Bexon. It was a wrench. On my handing over, we had a full parade, a 100% turnout with a band playing. I inspected the regiment and it only then occurred to me how close I'd come to these people. There were men standing there crying on parade, which very much affected me. Until then, I hadn't realised the depth of feeling that there was for, all, for us all. It was very much a family thing. And we'll just have a short break there while we think of poor old Alan Bexon sailing off into the sunset. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On the 1st January 1973, Major Lee Parks took over command of 307 Battery. He had a clear idea of what he needed to do, and this is what he said. It was a question of just maintaining and trying to improve. Alan Bexon had done the job of getting the thing off the ground, and I had the job of trying to improve it and get the whole unit technically trained so that they were capable of going off to Germany. It was just pure training, going off to as many weekend camps as we could do, where we had live firing and getting the OPs to do what they were supposed to be doing. Now, he's also... Uh, Parks is a quite determined character. He wants to stamp his mark on the officer's mess. This is that's what any new commanding you know, CO wants to do. And this is what Lee Parks says. I was always a bit of a stickler in the mess. I'm afraid. I ran it my way, the old-fashioned way with old-fashioned manners and the way that I'd been brought up as a young officer. I expected everybody when I walked in the mess to stand up, and they all did. It had always gone on. We always had done for any commanding officer. I insisted that those sorts of manners were kept. We'd have mess meetings and they'd all decide they wanted to do this or that or the other. If I approved of it, then fine. But I'm afraid that if I didn't approve of it, then they'd have a vote. They'd all vote in favour and I'd say, I'm sorry, I'm very sorry, gentlemen, but it's not going to happen. Full stop. <laughs> Whose mess is this? Mine! What a character. Uh, he's a traditionalist, isn't he? Um, and uh, he's willing to risk trouble, uh, uh, you know, with his subordinates, but he's also willing to risk trouble with higher-ups. Uh, when it comes to defending established yeomanry traditions uh, um, of, of the regiment, if there was any encroachment from the Royal Artillery or anybody else, uh, this is what Lee Park says about this aspect. Historically, we'd kept our own cap badge and uniform all through the Second World War. Why should we give it up? Nobody really moaned. But then they started up on it. Oh, well, can't you change? And I just put my foot down and said, no. A major general came up to me at a passing out parade for recruits and said, I want your soldiers to wear gunner hats whilst on this parade. I said, I'm terribly sorry, general, but they're not going to. One of those times where a major argues with a major general. I wonder if he had a lot of promotion after that. <laughs> yes. Um, now, so uh, now the other thing is, Lee Parks had been an OP officer on these OP parties off to Germany. What else is he determined to do? 
Well, he's determined to get better treatment for his OP parties when they're detached to the regular units in Germany. And this is what he says. We went off to 1st Royal Horse Artillery and the CO very kindly lent me his staff car for the week. We had lunch with one regiment and then moved on and had dinner with another regiment, stayed the night and then moved on. The sole aim really was to try and explain to commanding officers officers and battery commanders in the regular army in Germany what the South Knots Hussars was all about, what we were trying to do and what we expected when our soldiers came over to Germany to do the exercises and to plead with them not to give us the 432 APC or Land Rover that had been standing in a corner for four years because it was a total waste of our time coming over. Yeah, this is the thing of uh, 432. You, you know in the regular army, sometimes they have a, a 432 that's for spares, for the others, to keep the others going. Well, if you give that one to the, uh, the OP party, they're not going to be able to keep up, are they? No, and in 1974... There's a cut suffered by 307 battery when the number of OP parties required was cut from 24 to 12. While at the same time, the gun troop of 25 pounders was formally added to the unit establishment. Now, they were worried about that at the time, but I can see... I could see some benefits of this. Why why do you think... Well, it certainly makes it uh, uh, easier to recruit 12 rather than 24, doesn't it? Yeah, you only need 12 officers, not 24. It's... It's just a lot of specialist personnel. That's why I said it makes it easier to recruit 12 and not 24. I know. I was emphasising your brilliant point that you've made. But as one problem eased, another arose as the 307 battery was placed under the command of Brigadier John Parham. Parham? Parham. Parham. Um, Commanding um, 21st Artillery Brigade based at Woolwich. This new arrangement proved very difficult for Brigadier Parham, conceived of a great dislike for the South Knots Hussars. Who could dislike the South Knots Hussars? We love them. Well, it came to a head during a UK exercise at the annual camp. That was at Westdown Camp that year. Uh, that's 1975. Now, Parham is absolutely pissed off at dissatisfied with everything he saw and he expressed himself gary forcibly uh, without restraint or reserve or anything and this is what major lee parks had to say i've got a right roasting but he put the blame mostly on the training officer after that he seemed to have it in for the south knots hussars and we could never do anything right for him he expected a little bit too much as we walked around he would nitpick Oh, there's a bit of camouflage there. That's not right. Lots and lots of nitpicking points that perhaps he was right, but at the end of the day, we were territorials doing a job and he didn't seem to understand the territorial mentality. He was a little man. Now, this uh, this ongoing dispute with Parham, it, it blights the last few months of poor old Lee Park's command. Uh, it, 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 it does spoil his time, really. Uh, and he hands over to his successor, Major Tony Haynes, who we've seen go from a cadet. You know, it seems to be happening quite quickly, but it's 10 years. Uh, in January 1976. How do you think Lee Parks had done? Well, he'd undoubtedly done well in his core mission of providing OP parties for Germany. There, of that, there's no doubt. Uh, but also, there's no doubt that Haynes felt that Parham's vindictive approach had damaged the unit back in England. And this is what Tony Haynes, Major Tony Haynes, now says: "I was picking up from a low point. 
It was fairly, it was a fairly demoralised unit, and my aim was to bring the fun back and build up the esprit de corps that had been so dented by Brigadier Parham. But obviously, at the same time, to try and improve the technical skills so that people going out to Germany could do so with confidence and fly the flag for the South Nazis. Now, he tried to move forward on two fronts, continuing to build up the social life in the officers' mess and to try to keep the Saturday nights of weekends training free for social events. He also changed some of the direction of the training. And uh, Major Tony Haynes goes on to say... I was trying to give a a little more breadth to the training to interest everybody at the end of the day. It was six or seven years since we first started OP training and it can get a little bit boring, especially for those who've been doing it all that time. Everything was geared towards OPs and I just tried to lighten it as far as possible. I tried to make weekends when we were away more interesting. I took a lot of the emphasis of overnight training, trying to keep the social side going on Saturday evenings, working hard during Saturday and Sunday morning, but enabling people to let their hair down without getting drenched on Saturday night out on the ranges. We also did treasure hunts and escape and evasion exercises. Yeah, good, which are fun. Yeah. Now, he was perhaps fortunate that within a year he was dealing with a different CRA, that's Commander Royal Artillery, of the uh, 21st Brigade. Uh, and his replacement was uh, Brigadier Charles Bromby, who proved far better disposed to the South Nazis. And uh, it was no coincidence that their report soon improved markedly. Now, one thing that we, we've got to keep in the background is uh, for this sort of TA regiment like South Nazis, the political side of the battery commander's role, it's important, is it? Isn't it? And Tony Haynes was a natural in that capacity. He knew the importance of the yeomanry cachet of the South Nazis officers' balls held in the grandest stately homes and of the band. Oh, the music. Oh, the musicians. Yeah. They still had their own brass band, yeah. And Major Tony Haynes says this. The band was really our flag, which we used to wave. I was such, I was such a, 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 it was such a wonderful public relations item. We were very, very fortunate to have the last brass band in the British Army. Something that we were all proud of. Uh, I think he means in the TA, but because the, the Grenadier Guards still have it. Was it the last or the last? Uh, last. All right. Now they needed all of their uh, public acumen because what 307 Battery was trying to achieve involved a high wire balancing act of supreme difficulty. And uh, Major Tony Haynes says this. We carried on the traditions. We were still living in the past. We were still a regiment. Although we were a battery, we looked upon ourselves as a South Nazis regiment, which they weren't. They were a part of 101 battery, which we discussed earlier. 101 regiment. They, They were just a battery. And they were trying to be part of the Royal Artillery, but independent of it. Now to perform a vitally important high-tech modern role but maintain the traditions of a bygone age. Well, there's a lot of inherent contradictions there, aren't there? Yeah. And, 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 and you've just got to be a skillful... As you said, Tony Haynes needed to be a skillful political operator. And he is. I remember Tony. He's a, a nice man, but also a man with those political <laughs> skills. A man like yourself that people just wanted to please. And Tony Haynes could see the contradictions, but he was determined to carry on. By the late 1970s, the impact of the Cold War was also deepening. That's because you'd joined the army. Although one-off emergencies and potential flashpoints were of far less consequence than uh, the Cuban crisis, 
there was a greater perception of the depth of the Soviet menace. Yeah, the, and, and also the, the, the advent of modern media, the all-seeing eye of television and, and, and the popular fictional re- representation, you know, Smiley's What's It and all that, you know, those John Le Carre novels, things like that, they all added to a sense of looming threat from the, the Reds. Yeah, and during the exercises in Germany, it did seem to be coming very close to home. And this is what Major Tony Haynes says. Along the border, he means the Soviet, uh, well, it'd be the East German border, wouldn't it? Along the border, you could see the bare area between the two fences, which is all mined. And you think, well, they're just over there and they'll be at the coast in five days. It brings it home to you. My word, I was aware in those days of what the threat was. I I thought we were too thin on the ground. Battlefield nuclear was very high on the list as one of the only ways to stop them. And that's something people forget. You know, we talk about the Soviets threatening to use nuclear weapons in the Ukraine, but there's no two, as you'll remember from when you were in the army, that... uh, that The plan was we would use them first. The the idea was to delay them reaching the coast for about six weeks to give the politicians time to try and uh, stop it. Now, there was an increasing realisation of the sheer size and strength of the Warsaw Pact armies, the incredible number of tanks that could come hurtling over the border and straight for them. And Tony Haynes says, We used to have the occasional lecture from the Russian study group who who were Ministry of Defence based. They used to give us these lectures on what life would be like in war against the Russians, where they were saying, don't worry about your maps and where the forests are. The Russians don't need maps. They just go straight. They don't worry about roads. They'll go cross country. They have one leader and he's the only one with the radio and everyone else follows. So the idea was that we've got to knock out the lead tank with all the antennae on it. Yeah, I think that's simplifying situation. It's very simplifying. But, but, but there's an element of truth about the, the nature of Soviet plans at the time. And they if you were... think about the, the news we're seeing at the moment, the T-72 tank is still very much in operation in certain parts of the world. And there's still some of the tactics employed in Ukraine have been, as I understand it, fairly simple. Now, this period marked the advent of a young officer cadet Ian Cunningham, who would have a great impact on the South Nazis' arse. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a, he, a future commanding officer. We're, we're following these people through. Uh, it's quite interesting for me, anyway, to remember these chaps. Now, his first trip to Germany uh, was uh, to accompany Battery Captain Mike Parker, uh, who uh, and they were attached to E-Battery 1st RHA during Exercise Mizzenmast. A vast behind, Gary. And that's 1977. Uh, so this is what Ian Cunningham says. He was 426 troop gas. Albeit that Captain Mike Parker was always a disaster in terms of timing and organisation, he was an incredibly competent forward observation officer. Once he was actually on exercise, he was tremendously efficient. He was a really good field soldier and he could always get on with anybody and liaison is a very important part of the OP officer's role. But we nearly missed the plane going out because Parker took so long to get his kit into the wagon to go and catch the flight. That would always be Mike. Funny he doesn't mention that in his own interview. (laughs) Oh, now, when they got out there, they're immediately made aware of what the uh, regulars thought of them. Now, this is something you might want to comment on. But what does Ian Cunningham say? They called us stabs. Stupid TA bastards. Our response, so far as the officers were concerned, was that a regular officer was merely somebody who couldn't hold down two jobs 
which of course we did. There was a great deal of good-natured banter. Are you aware of the term stabs? Yeah, and and it was a similar view when I was in. We used to get um, uh, we used to get the um, territorials come out and and travel up to Berlin with us uh, once a week, and uh, we got a, a wide variety, shall we say? You looked down on them, did you? Absolutely. Did you call them stabs? Yeah, okay. we did, or, or worse. Now, uh, despite these strenuous attempts of both Lee Parks in the past and Tony Haynes to talk sense to the regulars as a rule, uh, it was obvious they still weren't getting through to the men that counted in maintenance. Uh, this is the business. They still were getting clapped out, 4-3-2s and Land Rovers. Uh, now, uh, there's another perspective of what's going on, and, and this is very interesting for me, and I, th- I believe for you. And uh, this is a, one of the great characters we interviewed was a chap called Ian Aldershaw. Uh, we need some background to Ian Aldershaw. Perhaps you'd like to f- f- fill us in a bit. Well, it's very, very little. But in 1974, Ian Aldershaw had been approaching a crossroads in his life. And it's fortunate that he had a family who cared more for his future than he probably did himself. And some of this resonates with me, and I'll, I'll comment on it. And you're going to tell us what band boy Ian Aldershaw says. Aye. As I was approaching 16, I began to hang around with the wrong crowd. I started to find myself in little bits of trouble and was brought home by the police a couple of times. My brother, he was already a member of the South Nuts Assassin, he said to me one evening, Right, I want you to come with me. I'm going to get you to join the TA. That will give you some decent mates and put you on a different track. Now, what do you want to say about that? Well, you could replace Ian Oldershaw with Gary Bain because that's almost word for word exactly what happened with me. Uh, I was taken home quite regularly by the police. Um, I I thought that... uh, uh, you know, travelling on trains was free, for example, and I'd get quite regularly caught and taken home. Uh, I was taken home, accused of stealing a spirit level off of a a building site by the police. And uh, had you stolen it, Gary? No, I hadn't stolen that. Um, and I argued very forcibly, but but the police officer persuaded my parents to pay for it uh, because they said I would be you know likely to be uh, sentenced to some sort of uh, detention were it, it not the the case and then very soon after that uh, a, a chap persuaded me to go down to the recruiting office at Tallio Corner and next thing I know I'm in the army even though I wanted to join the navy <laughs> and and what's nice is that uh, band boy Ian Aldershot rises to be a full colonel Gary and and and, and some did you follow you know, you say it, put it is very very similar because I rose to be a band boy You once, had, you once had three colonels working for you, though. So you were a brigadier. After just one weekend as an impromptu signaller at uh, Pro- uh, Proteus, Proteus Camp, yeah. he was uh, completely hooked. Promising new recruits were like gold dust, and it's worth bending every rule to make Aldershaw welcome. Ah, they lent him a uniform, they gave him kit, they showed him how to write down a message on the radio and they took him to the pub. <laughs> and ultimately, they signed him on. And this title, it's euphemistic, isn't it? But he wasn't really a band boy. Uh, he's just a, a young recruit, is what he is. And, and he signs up in August 1974. Um, now, it was in every way a life-changing experience for young Ian Aldershaw. Uh, his progress was rapid and he was soon promoted and sent out to Germany with various OP teams. Here, he encountered the 432 APC and could form his own youthful judgment as to whether the regulars were keeping their part of the bargain. What, in giving them a decent... 
And this is now Lance Bombardier, Ian <laughs> Oldershaw. Just like you, rapid promotion. A 426 troop. When they worked out, they were... Uh, they, they, when they, sorry. When they worked, they were... Uh, I'm too busy being rude about you. When they worked, they were an excellent piece of kit, but they were never any good. In general, if they had something break, <laughs> while they ordered a new one, they'd rob the one from yours. That's the part he means, ah. The trouble was, no one would ever fix yours. So when you got there, you'd spend a lot of time just getting it to work. They were, they were not maintained in any way, shape or form. Now, Aldershaw developed a thorough hatred for the hapless ferret armoured car, uh, the second vehicle of the OP team. And he goes on to say this. The ferret was absolutely hated by every man I ever came across. They were they were renowned for being unstable, and when they had turned over, they decapitated people because the commander sits at the top. The driver's hatch was either open or they slammed shut on you, and you caught your bloody fingers. Aye, but I heck is like. Now, when they finished the exercises and handed in their kit, there was one last problem to overcome. The regular army quartermaster sergeants... Oh. Oh, I think I know what you're going to say. They were unscrupulous in the extreme. Men with no feelings or sentiment. Men always on the lookout for an angle. Is that aimed at anyone in particular? That's aimed at uh, our friend Major Chris Carlin, who was uh, for a long time a regimental army quartermaster sergeant. And this is once more Lance Bombardier in Aldershaw. You always had to be very, very wary when you joined a regular unit about their quartermasters because they would try to make up kit they were missing. So if they came off exercise and some of their lads had lost a broken kit, they would try and blame the TA and get us to pay or replace it. It was a problem if you weren't switched on. I can see that, yeah. Now, towards the end of his period in command, Haynes began to turn his mind to the question of the succession. Not in the immediate future, for his battery captain, Mike Parker, seemed the obvious choice, but in the longer term. Towards the end of his period in command, Haynes began to turn his mind to the question of the succession. Not in the immediate future, for his battery captain, Mike Parker, seemed the obvious choice, but in the longer term. Yeah, this is something that always goes on TA units. They've got to look to the future. They've got to plan it all out. And Tony Haynes says this. I went to see James Gunn not long after I'd taken over. And he said to me, <laughs> how do you see the succession plan? I gave him my ideas, which included Tim Richmond. James Gunn turned to me and said, what? <laughs> A fat officer commanding the South Nazis ours? I said, I don't think Build comes into it. After all, he's got the makings of a good commanding officer. Uh, so I, I like that quote to finish up. And I'm just looking across at you and thinking of Tim Richmond now. You're just weird. And with that, we'll leave the South Nazis ours for yeah, now. Yeah, we'll be back. Uh, we'll be back to look at uh, their, their career. gets more exciting. We're all building up, aren't we? But this has been a Cold War one, hasn't it? And, and you were part of that. It was serious at the time. And I think, in a way, this Ukraine business makes us realise just how bloody serious it was. Yeah, I mean, in the, the early 80s, you had the intelligence uh, corps, I think it was 7 Inc. Company, used to go around doing what they called the threat lecture, which was you know, informing the infantry regiments of what they could expect, uh, looking at the equipment, Kalashnikovs, uniforms, that sort of thing. So the threat was real. So we pay tribute to these members of the ter Territorial Army who actually played a very important role. Uh, they may have been stabs to the regular army, but actually they were doing something important. They were. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?